Dave, I I read a book by Carl Polanyi about the gold standard being a really important institution and its breakdown being a key factor in the war. What I didn't realize was he was talking about World War II. Ah! <laughs> so because I didn't understand the gold standard very well, I didn't even understand what war he was talking about. But then I went back and picked it up again. And uh, then I real after, now that I with my newfound with my newfound understanding of the financial machinations leading up to World War One, uh, I understood that the book Carl Polanyi's Great Transformation and his discussion of the gold standard is primarily talking about World War Two, but that's okay. Um, so Dave, I have investigated uh, the gold standard from many different angles over the past several weeks. Uh, and I, I am ready to present my conclusions to you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay, so first of all, um, there are a number of schools of thought and at least one of them, uh, which is represented by uh, a guy named, I think his first name is Steven Zarlenga, and he works at some place called the American Monetary Institute, and he has a book from 2002 called The Lost Science of Money. And I found that uh, Zarlenga is similar to a couple of other books that I read um, long, long time ago. One is by someone named Ellen Brown called like Web of Debt, and another is by Michael Robotham called Goodbye America. And all of these books have a whole critique of banking and money creation. And they sort of see money creation as the center of the universe and the pivot of history. <laughs> so uh, it's pretty, it's like a theory of everything. Uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll present that to you. Uh, well, I looked, I looked up Zerlinga. Uh, yeah. It seems like he had a career in mutual fund investing and uh, commodity trading and uh, real estate and insurance. So with that kind of background, it's not that surprising. Yes, yes. And Michael Hudson, who's another one, um, also has a similar background. He worked for banks in the 1970s. Right. And he wrote uh, a couple of really important books. One is called uh, Super Imperialism, which is actually not about... Uh, he, he was like, he should have called it dollar imperialism, but super imperialism has caught on as the title and that book he wrote in 1971 and that book is really really important for everything after world war one um but not leading up to world war one because he doesn't get into it that much in that book anyway so michael mm -hmm. hudson is interesting because michael hudson identifies with something called modern monetary theory and modern monetary theory is not that different from these uh, money creation people because modern monetary theory is basically the idea that what gives money, what makes people want to use money is the fact that the state accepts the money as taxes. So their whole thing kind of flips it on its head in the sense that they don't believe that taxes are what the government needs to fund its operations. Taxes are what the government uses to give force to the money that it uses to command all the resources that the government needs to do things. So it's just a, a so, you know, their whole point is like 
the government actually spends the money first and then it taxes the money back, which if you think about it makes sense because people don't make money, only governments make money. So they make a, a, a strong distinction between what a currency issuer can do and what a currency user can do. So that that's a pretty useful framework too, um, especially for understanding current economic debates over debt and deficits and taxes and interest rates and inflation. But it's a, it's a little bit, it's only a little bit useful for what I'm going to do here. Well, there's a good connection to World War One because that's when income tax was invented. Exactly, exactly. And, and we are going to talk about that a little bit because it's 1913 for the U.S., um, <laughs> which can't none of these things can be coincidental. Right. No. And then no. and then we have uh, Lenin and Marx and Marx, you know, Zarlenga has a critique of Marx, um, which I think Hudson would probably not agree with. And lots of Marxists that I would also talk about don't you know, there are Marxists who just defend Marx. Right. Whatever he said. If you if if it if it was wrong, it's because you didn't understand it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but like Zarlenga's critique of Marx is, he says, you know, the problem with Marx is he understands it as like capital versus labor, and in fact, both capital and labor are oppressed by the money system and the way money is created and used in uh, our system. So Marx um, had what you would call like. Actually, he didn't have that different of a view from like mainstream economists uh, in terms of what money is. He had a commodity. He had an understanding of money as a commodity, which uh, which, you know, Zarlenga or MMT people, I think, don't agree with. Money's not a commodity. It's more like a way of keeping track of things that are happening in the economy and who owes what. OK, and then we have all these people are Marxists, but they're um, a certain kind of Marxist and they they, the school is identified as Indian Political Economy, or IPE, and they go back to Naoroji, who I've mentioned before, who had the drain hypothesis, the idea that Britain was draining India's wealth. Shocking and still, you know, outrageous okay. idea, <laughs> apparently, because maybe Britain was just there, you know, to hang out, enjoy the weather. Um, so uh, Naoroji, but... Uh, now, Roji had this, and so some of the people who have taken that up are like the famous uh, Patnaiks, Otsa and Prabhat Patnaik, and then um, uh, there's a recent thesis that I've mentioned before by a guy named Jay Therapel in Australia. So the, the IPE, or the Indian political economy view of uh, international gold standard and exchange and stuff, is that they... Um, the you have the only way you can uphold a, a system like a gold standard or the the dollar standard that we have today that may be cracking at the edges at least um, is by a constant influx of free labor you know slavery colonies uh, free land uh, stolen from indigenous people so if you don't have that constant engine of uh, real exploitation you can't keep the gold standard going. So there's roughly speaking four views or lenses that we can take on the gold standard. Now, because it's a theory of everything, Zarlenga, who I'm going to use to talk 
uh, all the way up to our the period we're discussing. Uh, Zarlenga really does have a history of everything. So you go back to ancient times. Hudson has some ancient history. David Graeber, the late David Graeber, has some ancient history too. And um, the idea is, you know, the classical economists have this mythology where it's like once upon a time, human beings bartered, then they realized that wasn't efficient, so they used gold. And then eventually now we're in an era of computers and record keeping for money. And in fact, um, Hudson and Graeber have kind of unearthed the fact that in in early civilizations like Babylon uh, and, and the Near Eastern ancient civilizations, they actually used record keeping first. So it was first at the temple, the, the mm. temples would keep track of what you owed them and that and then they would that money could kind of circulate in various ways. And actually, pre, those, temp yeah. those temples functioned a little bit like banks. They yes, they lent exactly. they exactly. lent money. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And they lent money for weddings. They lent money for you know events, funerals, right? Like anything, any big event that you is when you need an influx of money that you can't, you don't, a normal person won't just have sitting around, right? And then that's then you pay that back. Right, and, because in in so many of the the classical history, you get an invasion, yeah. and then you hear of the temples being looted. Yes, exactly. which makes no sense unless you realize that that's where the money is. Right, right, that's where the money is. Um, so before that, so Graeber has this uh, discussion. It's a book called "The Debt: The First Five Thousand Years" or something. And before ancient times, I guess. He he says probably like um, I don't know pre-urban uh, civilizations would exchange people so they would to settle big debts or accounts they would exchange slaves or exchange prisoners or or marry someone off um, and so the person is the unit uh, of, of course livestock too right mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. short of short of a person you can give somebody a cow if you accidentally kill kill them, kill their husband or something, <laughs> maybe a few cows. So after that, um, there's the abstract systems. And then the reason metallic systems, the reason you have gold and silver becoming currency in this view, in Graeber's view, is because when you have armies marching uh, and you have states collapsing, and the army wants to pay some farmer or some merchant for something that that you 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 don't know whose paper money or whose accounts or which temple you can uh, account you can trust that they're going to pay you back because they are that temple might be looted those priests might be murdered that state might collapse and that's where coinage becomes important because well, that's something <clears throat> you know yeah, I I got hung up on the uh, the word coinage because if you mm. if you look it up, the first official coinage is usually credited to Lydia mm -hmm. in southern Anatolia. Okay, but metal currency is much Earlier. much older. Sure, because yeah. Sumer and Babylon had it, China yeah. had it long yeah. before Lydia made official coins. But With coins caught on. So coin being like the stamp, right? Yeah. So there's a huge debate about this. So Zarlenga is just obsessed with this debate where it's like, does the coin get value based on the value of the metal? 
as in like gold or silver? Or does the coin get value because of the stamp on it? And that's oh. why some some societies like Sparta used iron money, right? And so they were like, the coin itself is not worth anything. You want to melt the iron down? <laughs> Go ahead, right? Or <laughs> or like, you can you can get that in reverse. Yeah. So Canada, for example, has eliminated the use of the the penny, the one cent yeah. coin, because it costs more than a penny to make one. Yes. <laughs> and that's even without copper in it, because copper is now wow more valuable, Very valuable. Than, yeah you yeah. you want to have a penny that's actually the the metal in the penny is worth more than the penny and that's the other um that's the other problem with gold so what happens when the face value of the coin dips below the value of the metal in the coin then everybody has an incentive to melt it down and sell the metal so that becomes that's a historic <clears throat> problem um and so Zarlenga here comes along in 2002, and he, his whole point is money is is the face value. It's not. It's an illusion. It's a mistake. It's a historical mistake to believe that money is gold. That the amount of that it's it come the value comes from the metal. It doesn't come from the metal. It comes from the state and the state's ability to guarantee it. And so it's not. And and there's various problems that he views as um, just like a misunderstanding. He says, you know, there's a science of money and many, many states in history have not understood it. And other times the ruling class has understood the science of money, but they did not tell the masses and they used the science of money against uh, societies to enrich themselves. Interesting. I, I don't, <laughs> I think he should have studied more history. <laughs> because I, I also think it's a little bit conspiratorial in, yeah, in various well, ways. No, and that's it's not right. conspiratorial enough in other ways. Okay. Anyway, you, you tell me first. I think it is conspiratorial because you have literally hundreds of examples of states debasing their currency. Mm -hmm. So they know how much gold or how much silver is in the coin. And we're short of money, so we're going to stretch it by reducing the amount of silver in our coin yeah and people and the, aren't entirely stupid yes they catch on yeah and then they don't want to use those coins or they don't want to accept those coins because yeah. they know that there's less silver in it now he's right in the sense that they still think the coin is valuable because of the precious metals in it but if you're going to cheat they're they're going to catch on right so, debasing so, your, the, so the sorry. extreme in the extreme case you have paper money where yes. it's not backed by anything and it's not there's no precious metal in it and so what is backing it up this is where mmt comes in what's backing it up is the fact that if you get a five dollar bill and the government says you owe us ten dollars in taxes that paper, the government will take that paper. So if the as long as the government is accepting the money as taxes, it will circulate um, as real money within the state. But now, what if there's a war and your government is about to be, you know, no more? Well, then people will definitely lose faith in that currency. We we covered this in the, our French Revolution episodes when you know, desperate for for money, the the revolutionary government introduced assignats paper with an assigned value mm -hmm. but i mean it was a horrific failure you're giving government employees a piece of paper and telling them okay that's money 
Yeah. And then they go down to the bakery, and the baker goes, "No, <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not money." Right. So they right. started trading at you know one tenth of their face value. Yeah, yeah, because the because people didn't have faith in the state. They didn't that, know whether the state was going to be there next year. Right. They they were worried that the government was going to be overthrown. So um, so in Zarlenga's view, it's the most uh, advanced type of money. He uses the Latin word nomisma, or maybe it's Greek. Uh, it's it's an object created by law by the state. And it doesn't matter what what it is. It can be paper. It can be records in a computer. Um, and it's the 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 mistake is believing that uh, gold and silver have value. So what the reason I say it's not conspiratorial enough is because again he doesn't really seem to get uh, the the role of war in gold. Like because. You know, he's he's looking at it as an American and America has been remarkably stable. Right. Nobody ever nobody's ever invaded America. Well, I mean, uh, Pancho Villa, <laughs> you know, aside okay. from Pancho yeah. Villa, um, yeah. you know, the, the 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 faith in the U.S. continuing to exist is fair, has always been fairly high. So it's probably hard for someone like that to imagine, like, why people would want gold Right. Like gold, people depend on gold and silver when those they can't count on the state being there. So. So nomisma is Greek. I think so. And numismatics is the study of coinage and currency. There it is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Aristotle, he quotes Aristotle, who apparently understood this. So Aristotle understood this. And and, uh, we know from. text that Aristotle probably got this from the Egyptian library. But in any case, uh, Aristotle writes, all goods must be measured by some one thing. Money has become by convention a sort of representative of demand. And this is why it has the name nomisma, because it exists not by nature, but by law. And it is in our power to change it and make it useless. And Plato also wrote in the Republic, no, in, in their ideal Republic, no private individual shall possess or hoard gold or silver bullion. Our citizens should have a money current among themselves, but not acceptable to the rest of mankind. So, wow, I missed that. Yeah, that's. I mean, I don't trust Zarlenga. Maybe that's not in there. Like Zarlenga, <laughs> Zarlenga is so obsessed with the thesis that I don't. I've never. You know, I didn't go and check the quotes, but take all the quotes. If you can find the, here's a challenge for listeners. If you can find these quotes somewhere other than Zarlenga, that that would be great. Um, but here's the other thing. So there's war. There's the role of gold and silver in war. But there's also this thing. Plato saying this actually gives us a clue here because nope, we should have a money among themselves, but that's not acceptable to the rest of mankind. Now. What about trade between yeah. states? <laughs> like right? Athens? Yeah. Like, what if you're selling clay pots in your Athens, and uh, you, what are you going to take back in return? It, is it going to be barter? Or, you know, you can't take the promise of another state. Well, maybe you can. I mean, but that's pretty... You probably want gold, right? And that's that's the reason. That's another reason why gold standard becomes, or gold, metallic coinage, gold and silver, become so important is for trade between states, trade right. across states. So it's it's great. It's one thing to say, you know, money has these roles, like an MMT person, 
Uh, money has these roles to play in in activating people to do public works and whatever and, and pay taxes. But money, you also need to earn foreign exchange if you want to trade with somebody, if you have no oil or if you have no bananas, you know, and you, you're going to pay them in maple syrup. Sure, you can you can do barter. They they do it in the modern world, too. China does it with uh, countries to get around sanctions and stuff. But like, you know, gold and silver. Or, or are you going right. to insist that they pay you in Athenian currency? That's right. One, well, what is Athenian currency? And how do they get it, that Athenian yeah. currency? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So so these are the two these are the two issues. One is war and the other is international trade that that bring gold and uh and silver into they they keep bringing them back. <laughs> okay. But Rome, ancient Rome, uh there were for Zarlenga there was an advanced period and a regressive period. So when they were doing really well, they used bronze coins which were not the val- the metal was not particularly valuable and they did that until the end of the wars with uh Carthage. So Rome's numerary system lasted 200 years. Uh this is Zarlenga quoting Zarlenga has a person that he really likes from the 19th century named Alexander Delmar, an American Okay. statistician from you know 100 some years ago so he's always going back to delmar and delmar says rome's numerary system lasted 200 years during which all that was admirable of roman civilization saw its origin its growth and maturity when the system fell rome lost its liberties so again the question of slavery <laughs> um... <laughs> the issue of slavery is a little glossed over by zarlenga also in american history <laughs> like like he's like you know the southern states opposed uh alexander hamilton's and i'm like what was it about the southern states that was different mm. <laughs> anyway we'll get back to that but so when they were conquering when they were at war rome used silver right to buy stuff uh for their troops which makes sense what do they get why would why should foreign why should people in the process of being conquered who don't know how the war is going to go except roman coins right um but uh during their war with hannibal this is a very interesting um thing that zarlenga says which again i have no idea if it really happened but it could be he he says that rome melted all the bronze coins down and coined a new silver denarius and the reason is everybody was using the bronze coins including hannibal was using the bronze coins that he, you know, looted, right? Like he would take a Roman city, loot the coins, and then use them to buy things for his army. So wavering allies, cities that have gone over to Hannibal, the Romans say, well, that's no longer, Rome is no longer accepting those coins. So they melt their coins down, they demonetize their bronze coins, and they say, now if you want to trade with Rome, you have to use the silver denarius. And they minted them at the temple of Juno Moneta, which is apparently where the term money comes from. Uh, They also issued gold coins. Um, They borrowed gold jewelry from the nobles, uh, minted gold coins in 218 BC and 209 BC. Uh, The gold denarii were worth 20 silver denarii. And here's a huge trick, okay? This is where the ratio trade comes in. And this is another one of these things that comes down for thousands of years 
and this is crazy, Dave. I didn't know this. And I, I kind of believe it. You tell me if it makes sense to you. Basically, in the West, like Europe, they like gold more than they do in Asia. So in Asia, gold is worth um, six, seven times what silver. So you get, you know, you give one ounce of silver, you get, or eight ounces of silver, six, seven, eight ounces of silver, you get one ounce of gold back. And in the West, you give nine, 10, 15 ounces of silver to get one gold back. Which if there if there's a price difference in two places, you know, between one place and another, there's what's called an arbitrage opportunity. If you can get your gold east or if you can get your silver west, you can get a you can get a profit, a huge profit potentially out of that difference. Okay. So that could be simply supply and demand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that but but it's such a big dynamic that it changes the supply and demand over time. Right. Right. But that just means that the gold in the Middle East yeah. was found where mm-hmm. the gold in, you know, Europe hadn't been found or yeah. or maybe there wasn't as much. Can we yeah. go back just for a sec? I just did sure. a quick a quick look at uh, the denarius. Yeah. So uh, the argument here is that Rome had to switch to the denarius because of Hannibal. Yes. So. The first silver denarius was coined at the Temple of Juno Moneta in 269 BC, uh. which is five years before <laughs> the first Punic War and long before Hannibal was even born. Yeah. So, There's another one. There's several of these where I tried to look it up on Wikipedia and the yeah. dates didn't match with no. what Zerlango was nice, saying. Nice theory. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, let's move on. Okay. Exchange rates. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the Punic Wars um, end. Rome wins. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, Zarlenga thinks it was a very close thing. Do we agree that it was a very close thing? The first... Uh, the first was uh, evidenced by the fact that there was a second and Hannibal mm-hmm. scared the, the crap out of Rome for yeah. years. Um and then the third was uh, just a, right. a a beating. And then, of course, they sacked Carthage and took all took of the, all the money, all yeah. the coins. Yeah. Making the war so, pay for itself. And then they went on to Macedon and again, yeah. conquering Macedon. They got the treasury. They brought lots of metal back, uh, slaves to work the lands that are emptied of farmers. The farmers go and fight the wars. And that's like the Roman that's Rome, right? <laughs> Rome well, actually, is, that's where their social crisis comes from. Exactly. It's slavery, not silver. Yeah, again, Zarlenga doesn't doesn't get the slavery thing. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. just like, come on, man. And he, and when he does uh, I talk about slavery, he talks about it as like as if he was a Roman citizen. So he's like, these damn slaves are taking away our jobs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're oh, like, what's dear. it to you, Zarlenga? I don't know. Anyway, so Julius Caesar, uh, when he becomes um, the first first man of Rome, he sets uh, by by government rule a silver to gold ratio of twelve to one. Um, so that actually makes uh, silver cheaper or gold. Yeah, this is gold. Um, 
This is so confusing to me, Dave. It makes it means you need more silver to get gold in the West than you uh, otherwise would. Okay. Um, but it's less than the highest ratios. So what happens is India, the trade with India is actually draining precious metals east, which is a constant Western problem, right? You want the things from the Asia and you end up having to pay for them in silver. And so there's this constant drain of silver. So you ever, every once in a while, you have to go and attack, <laughs> sack some towns and bring the gold and silver back. Yeah, I don't think that's, th that's, that sounds right. Because when yeah. Caesar was assassinated, he was setting up his expedition to Parthia, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I, I'm sure had something to do with the silver gold ratio. Yeah, yeah. And Sulla and, and Marius, they also did these conquests in the East, right? Uh, or... Sulla did, yeah. Mithra, Mithridates. Mithridates, yeah. He was a, he had a lot of gold, didn't he? Oh yeah. And then somebody else got somebody else was killed in the Cr east. Crassus. Yeah. Crassus, because he loved the gold. So they were like, if you love the gold, then they poured gold on him, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Terrible. The things people do for gold. Anyway, um, so yes, the ratio trade. So apparently, Zarlenga says this ratio issue has been exploited again for thousands of years. Alexander, the Ptolemies, the Romans, Jewish traders, Templars, Venice, Portugal, Dutch, Britain. Uh, so, and, and it's also like, this is why to Zarlenga, the Middle East is important, right? Like the Middle East is this crossroads uh, to the west of there, gold is worth more, to the east of there, silver is worth more. So the people who control that pivot point can benefit from the trade. So the Romans want to control Egypt, the Jewish revolt, uh, the Crusaders wanting to control Jerusalem. It's all about the ratio. What do you think? Uh, I <laughs> no, I'm, right? not that keen on, I'm not that keen on theories that explain everything. <laughs> I also don't think so. But, you know, I got into it as I was reading, you know, you know, when you read something and you're like, oh, my God, yeah, this, that's it. I've got it. And then you sit down after and you're like, hmm. Uh, so. Constantinople is one of these crossroads historically, the, the Eastern Roman Empire. And that's why there was a conspiracy that Venice and the Crusaders got in, in together and sacked Constantinople as part of the, the Fourth Crusade, I guess, in 1204. Mm -hmm. So that happened, right? We, we know that the Crusaders did sack Constantinople and that it was a bit of a weird move, given that the Crusaders were supposed to go and take Jerusalem from the Muslims, and they just stopped on the way to sack a Christian city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of something. Something is up there. There's some mystery to solve. So maybe it was the ratio. Um, and the Crusaders themselves also were fighting the Muslims for for the ratio trade. So the Muslims, you know, wanted to benefit from their side. Uh, the Crusaders actually did master it and the crusaders actually developed a banking type of banking so and this is how they benefited so like somebody's traveling right to make um what do they call it pilgrimage right mm -hmm. they're doing a pilgrimage so a pilgrim is going a rich pilgrim maybe and instead of carrying the money that you need for the trip uh just deposit the money with the templars in france or in england or wherever you're going from and then you can pick up the money in Jerusalem or wherever you, you end up in the East. Um, and 
the Templars are good for it. The Templars have the the capacity to do that. And what do you know? You deposit in silver and you, you know, you receive it in gold and the Templars take the profit on the exchange, uh, which can be really big profits. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> so much so that the Templars became very rich and very powerful and they kind of upset the King of France who decided to <laughs> one day to <laughs> ban their order and slaughter them all. Um, and burn them and accuse them of all kinds of things. And the same time that Philip of France massacred the Templars, he also banished Jews from France. So again, Zarlenga thinks this was Philip basically um, shutting out the ratio trade, you know, breaking the monopoly of the Templars and Jewish traders over the ratio. Well, if he was at all a normal medieval ruler, he had probably borrowed from the Jews. So this is a way of yeah. <laughs> ending your debt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A debt jubilee. Um, and that's a that's a thing that ancient uh, societies used to do, right? So this is something Michael Hudson talks about in his ancient historical stuff, which is that every time there was a new ruler in the ancient Near East, right, like Babylon, Sumer, etc., every time a a king would die and a new king would come in they would wipe out all the debts that were that people had with the state and and let people start over so it was like a periodic debt jubilee because they understood back then even that compound interest was gonna was that the compound interest accumulates faster than any possible agricultural surplus like your cows are not going to multiply that way. Your fields, your crops are not going to multiply the way compound interest does. So you have to wipe out the debts every once in a while or, um, you know, your financial system breaks. And so Michael Hudson's thing is like in the West, we forgot that lesson. And the Romans and Greeks did not believe that you have to wipe out the debts periodically. And that's why Rome just kept getting into more and more crises uh yeah there's something there the 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 romans by not canceling debts Mm -hmm. basically had to commit themselves to finding more money yeah and that meant going to war and stealing it from somebody else yeah exactly exactly very different solution (laughs) bad solution um so uh and then so the templar banking system you know pay deposit here withdraw elsewhere for your travels for your business for all your business needs <laughs> right um, for all your east west business needs this is uh taken up after the templars are destroyed by italian cities mm-hmm. and italian families during the renaissance florence the lombards the jews get back into this business too right uh, mm-hmm. that's what one of shakespeare's Shakespeare's little things is a there's got a little play about a Jewish trader and some some Italian traders get into a little tiff over uh, the question of interest and how it's going to be paid back. Um, Catalonia gets into it. There's a there's a family called the Fuggers. Do you know about the Fuggers? Fuggers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The Fuggers of Augsburg. The, The bankers for the Habsburg Empire. Ah, well, there you go. Um, he t- Zarlega talks about them. There's the Welsers, the Hochstetters, the Tuckmans, uh, and then eventually there's a place in Bruges called the Place de la Bourse. Um, there's the Hanseatic League in Germany. Um, and 
during this period, like the Renaissance is the invention of the fractional reserve banking. I guess you could say the invention, maybe you could say the discovery. It's always interesting to uh, determine what exactly this is because um, the traders, these these banking houses, they accept deposits and they also make loans. And uh, and they realize they can actually loan a bit more than they have deposited as long as everybody doesn't ask for their deposits at the same time. Yeah. Which is also a pretty cool, <laughs> pretty cool thing to do if you're a bank, right? Yeah, most of these families or or most of these banking businesses, certainly the Medici in Florence, they get a little overstrained. They get, <laughs> the the reserves are just a little short, and the word starts to spread, and people want their money back. Yeah, and now you're in serious trouble. So Venice is where the Medici's are from. And, no, Florence. Uh, oh, Florence, Florence. Uh, so who's the anyway? I don't know who the family. Well, are. Venice and Genoa and Pisa. I mean, interesting thing about the Crusades, those three Italian states, republics, yeah. are all heavily involved in the Crusades. Uh-huh. And in it's financing not for them. their religious piety. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. And I think partly, like, they're very successful and uh, they're, you know, very, very much like seen as the people who set up a lot of the infrastructure for capitalism. But they also uh, are responsible for a lot of draining, like they're bringing fantastic stuff back from the East, right? And yep. and it's very exciting, the stuff that they're bringing back, even in even ideas and what whatnot, methods. But they're also uh, draining a lot of silver. Uh -huh. <laughs> so Europe, Europe's metal supply is going, which is, again, why they're financing the Crusades, because they need to get the, the metal back for, for to earn that foreign exchange. Um, and so the... The um, silver drain is getting pretty serious. The gold and silver drain uh, in the Renaissance is getting serious. Um, and uh, the Venetian traders are, are in some trouble. Uh, and they're basically finished off by Portugal when Portugal discovers the route to, uh, to the east around mm -hmm. the Cape, right? And so Portugal takes over the ratio. Portugal starts getting the benefits of the ratio trade. And Portugal had a very brief moment of glory in the sense that, you know, once they discover the new world, uh, Spain discovers the new world, that changes the whole dynamic. Because now you're stealing an, a massive gold and silver stock from Americas. Right. So this is this is the thing with precious metals. Yeah. If you're going to use them to make coins, you're going to run into a problem where, as time goes by, people are hiding their money. <laughs> yes. They're absolutely. burying it. They're they're putting it somewhere, and then they die, and the money is lost. Buried treasure. It doesn't circulate. It doesn't. You can't pay people, which means there's less economic activity that can be supported. It literally causes economic deflation. Yeah. Well, you've got a shortage of coinage. So what do you do? You have to yeah. issue more coinage, which means you have to have more silver. Yeah. You have to have more gold. So there's this constant pressure to find more precious metals. And, you know, other, other than mining every square inch of your country, uh, you can do it the, the Roman way. Yeah. Take it from somebody else. 
So Spain, uh, apparently, Zarlenga's uh, numbers are that they basically lifted 1,230 tons of gold and 60,440 tons of silver over the 200-year period between 1493 and 1690. So what he notes here is that the ratio is set by states if they have the power to do it, which Spain did. Um, so there's a 49 to 1 ratio in terms of supply of silver and gold, but Spain sets the ratio at 14 to 1. So they don't want gold to be that much more valuable. And Spain also is a case study in the fact that just because you have <laughs> the precious metal, it doesn't mean you have the you translate that into national power or economic well, they translated it into power. They were the dominant European power for 150 years, but they also blew their own economy to smithereens with massive hyperinflation. Too much, too much money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's why, like Zarlenga says, you know, most of the time gold is deflationary. Like most of the time, basing your money on this on this met metallic uh, coin is is going to cause a scarcity of money for all the business you want to do. But in Spain's case, this is, it was actually horrible inflation yeah. um, that destroyed Spain's economy. And again, this brings us back to Zarlenga's point, which is like what you need to do as a state is, is just issue the money that your society needs to match the population and the economic activity that's happening. And you can't do that if you're chasing uh, gold and silver, uh, you have to just do it as a law, legal contracts. And which which brings us to the people who really figured this out. <laughs> uh, the English, right? So the Dutch actually started, but the, Engl the Bank of England forms in 1694. And this becomes the model on which future banks form. And the Zarlengas hate this model because they understand that the state can issue money and they understand this that the, the the state can have a bank that creates the money that's needed to do whatever needs to be done but in england they do a very very clever thing where the rich people um create a bank as a private the bank of england is a private bank and as a private bank it creates the money it loans it to the state and the state pays interest to the Bank of England, the depositors or the, the you know, the shareholders, the private shareholders of the Bank of England. The state deposits the money back at the Bank of England, which the Bank of England can then lend out to other banks who then lend it onwards. So the banks hold their money as deposits at the Bank of England and can do their fractional reserve banking. But the money was created by the state. It's guaranteed by the state. But the Bank of England has somehow decided that they're loaning that equivalent of money to the state. And everybody agrees. And the state ends up paying interest to the Bank of England every time it creates money. Um, so private so the, this whole the, the result of this is that private individuals organized in this corporate banking structure ha now have seized control of the, what should belong to the state, uh, which is the power to issue money. And for this reason, Zarlenga also 
despises Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> um, <laughs> who who modeled the bank, the American uh, financial system on the Bank of England. And, it, it, you know, he goes back and he quotes Hamilton and he's like, can you believe this guy? Because Hamilton says, you know, every once in a while we're going to need money, especially when there's a war. And so we're going to need it to be loaned. The government's going to need it to be loaned to us. Um, and that's why the government has to be credible and issue, you know, and, and pay debts back and pay interest on the debts. And Zarlenga's like, no, we don't need it to be loaned to us because it's we're loaning it to ourselves. All we need is for the government to create the money in the first place. And um, that's what enrages Zarlenga so much about this Bank of England. So the Bank of England becomes the model for uh, the U.S. financial system as well. And then eventually the model for the for the Federal Reserve. I, I don't feel like I'm being the devil's advocate here, but in this case, I, you know, Zarlenka kind of has a point. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. It is, it is a kind of trickery, and, and uh, you know, whenever you read the explanation of why the central bank loans, you know, the government creates the money, gives it to the bank, the bank loans it back to the government, and then, it becomes deposits that the private banks hold with the central bank. It's like, wh why all those steps? And the reason is so that the central bank can get interest, right? Um, anyway, pretty is big. there a lack of trust in, in the <laughs> elected government? Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's also like, um, it's a political compromise, right? So Zarlenga believes that it's... Um, it's because we're stupid and we've been duped by the banks and the, you know, the economists who who are miseducating us on the nature of money and so on. And, we, and that's all true. We are stupid and, and we are being miseducated on the nature of money. But the real reason that the Bank of England and the U.S. Uh, system is what it is, is because these governments are um, making a class compromise with the wealthy and powerful who are basically saying, right. we will, you know, we will be part of this state and we won't uh, ask for too much, but we do expect, you know, unnatural privileges and power uh, commensurate with our wealth and standing. Right? Yeah. I, I'm looking at the date, the, the formation of the bank of England is 1694. Yeah. That's, that's basically five years after the Glorious Revolution. Exactly. So this is the second time that we've had to kick out a king. Yeah. Because because we don't trust them. Yeah. Absolutely. So if we don't trust the monarch yeah. with their political power, we also don't trust them with, with the our money. money. Exactly. But so it's it interesting is. that it's a private organization. Yeah, it's still weird. Yeah, so, but it's a private organization in the sense that it's the wealthy and powerful organizing themselves, and they're saying, like, we're not going to create a tyranny that can one day just take all our stuff, right? We're going right. to design a system so that that government is dependent on us, and so that we are constantly renewing and refreshing our wealth. And... Um, and William of Orange, right, the, the king who came in in the Glorious Revolution also borrowed a lot of money for the operation of taking over England. Yeah, so, yeah. So they ha they also had to uh, make new financial arrangements to make sure that all of that money could be paid back. They're, they wanted the return on their investment. Of, of yeah, I think that I think you're right. That's the that's the, the, the thing. It's the it's a it's the upper, upper, upper class. 
Yeah. Saying we don't trust the government with money. So if they want more money, they're going to have to pay for it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And every time the government issues money, we will also get more money. (laughs) Right. Like like if the if the government is going to make more money, create more money and put it into circulation by and and thereby like empower more economic activity and stuff, we're going to get that much richer, too. So they'll never the government won't ever be able to like pull ahead of us. Um, Because the national debt will always continue to grow. And there's a table of England's national debt where it kind of shows that after the glorious revolution you know there was 14.5 million pounds of national debt um but like the napoleonic wars by the napoleonic wars it's 500 million pounds so each time there's a period of war the debt yeah, yeah. you know doubles but then the napoleonic wars it just goes completely through the roof to the point where like everybody understands that's never going to be paid back. So what's really going on is there's this huge debt, national debt, which also is an instrument by which the ultra ultra wealthy ex- exercise discipline and control over what the state is able to do. Right. Um also results in famines. So um so, you know, the Irish famine that we've talked so much about, including in the last episode, uh, there's a historian named Hollis. I think we've also quoted Hollis, right? I think we might have even used this quote. But Zarlenga quotes Hollis, who says, in, Ire- in 1845, Ireland exported 779,000 quarters of wheat, 93,000 quarters of barley, and 2,353,000 quarters of oats. So the potatoes failed, but Ireland managed to export all this. Enough to feed for 12 months every person in Ireland who died of starvation nearly four times over. These exports of food went mainly to pay the interest on the mortgages in English bank manufactured money, which the Irish landlords, like the English landlords, had raised in order to pay the taxation required to meet the interest on the Napoleonic War debt. So again, theory of everything, right? Um, it's debt and interest and money that, uh, that also brings famines, which, you know, again, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that's incorrect. (laughs) No, no. Um, so some of these engines, which we've talked about for the past three years on this show, you know, the land theft, the gold theft from the Americas, the working indigenous people to death in the mines and in agriculture, the slave African slave trade. The colonization of India to reverse the drain of gold to the east and then the opium war with China to reverse the drain of silver to the east. So Zarlenga also talks about the another mechanism, which is like the the problem with paper money, because paper money is great because it's the way it's supposed to do. It gives the state the, con- the control it needs to uh, stimulate economic activity as as needed. But the problem is uh it's counter it's counterfeit you know counterfeit can be a problem so england understood that the american revolution uh was using paper money and they counterfeited on such a massive scale uh that it was apparently mind-boggling but the continental currency still worked pretty well because faith in the state i guess faith in the revolution it's a it's a measure of faith in the revolution right yeah yeah so Hamilton, uh, like we said, modeled the federal money system on the Bank of England. There was a whiskey rebellion. People were using whiskey as currency in Pennsylvania, I think. 
and they had like a shooting war over that shortly after the revolution. And then um, during and after the U.S. Civil War in the 1860s, they used a currency that was not backed by gold or silver, and it was called the greenback. And there was a whole greenback debate for decades after the Civil War. Um, uh, there's one other gold, there's one other importance of gold that the Patnaiks are, argue in their book about, uh, like a theory of, I think it's called a theory of imperialism. And, and they basically say like, because of the nature, you know, it's not unrelated to war or, um, or foreign exchange, but, um, when you have, uh, gold, when you have an, a global economy, investors are always going to want to hold some gold. And whenever there's a danger that inflation might happen, whenever there's a danger that, uh, you know, workers are going to make too much money or, you know, go on strike or, you know, commodities are going to get expensive for some reason, um, the investors know that gold is like a safe, safe place to put their money. So because of that, because of that last ditch like role that gold has whenever state issued currency fails, gold always has this special international role. What do you think of that? Yeah, I guess. Okay. It kind of goes back. It's kind of similar to what we've been saying about the yeah. ancient. So, um, you know, later on the, you know, in the 1970s, uh the U.S. just goes off of gold altogether, but that's uh, that's a story for another day. Now, um, according to Indian political economy, we have this uh, we have a, a exchange rate regime, like an ex a gold standard or a gold and silver standard, that's possible because of these continuous thefts of huge amounts of resources from the Americas, from India, from China, etc. So basically, the reason this has to keep going is because if you have, uh, if you, you, you're, you're fighting against the deflationary nature of the gold standard. Anytime you're dependent on gold and silver for your currency, you're going to create deflation you're going to have too little money uh because intrinsically it's like limited by how much gold and silver you can get and so, it disappears over time yeah and it disappears because people bury it and and everything and it and and they spend it in in the east <laughs> on commodities and then the the east uses it for themselves um so each time uh they go and grab something to inject new uh, money into the system um the global economy gets bigger too so you need more you need more currency to keep the system going each time you do it and so every time you do it you actually need to do more of it and so you keep getting these deflationary crises and once again dave the deflationary crises explain everything for example there was a big deflationary crisis before the 1848 revolutions in europe <laughs> So, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and then right after those revolutions, we have the Mexican-American War and the California gold rush, which brings a huge amount of new gold into the system. OK, so we're saved by that. Um, but then that also doesn't last very long because we get back into deflationary spirals. 
Um, and they keep trying to go, okay, well, what if we go on a gold standard? What if we go on a silver standard? What if we go on a flexible bimetallic standard? And we change the ratios. So these are the things that the European powers and America are trying to continuously do. Um, in 1857, at the Treaty of Vienna, Germany actually goes on a pure silver standard. France, for the most part, is usually bimetallic, and Germany demonetizes gold. So there's a big move that they do, which is like every once in a while, they'll demonetize one or the other metal, which again is an incredibly deflationary thing to do. You're basically taking half the money out of circulation, right? right, right. So that's a devastating move, but they do it once in a while when... You know, when they're in some crisis, when they don't have enough of one or the other metal or they have too much. So England, meanwhile, in India is absolutely uh, diabolical, diabolic and diabolically clever in terms of what they're doing to India. So they set the ratio in India at 15 to one and only silver coins are legal. So um <laughs> This is this is one of these things where you're like, oh, Zarlanga, you're so cute. You know what? You know why he thinks that England um, used it, it, it enforced only silver in India, a silver standard in India and a gold standard everywhere else. He says from 1852, only silver coins were legal tender in India, reflecting the higher esteem in which the Indian populace held silver. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> India, uh, the British just, they just cared so much about what the Indian populace, uh, you, you know. You want silver? We'll give you silver. <laughs> we'll give you guys silver. Just and leave, we'll, us the, leave us the gold. <laughs> and we'll collect your taxes in silver, right? So they collect the taxes in silver at a ratio of 15 to 1. They spend the silver in, like, China, where they're, they're doing, you know, so where it's 7 to 1. Um, and then they use the gold standard with the rest of the world. So it's just there. You just you got to. And, and a lot of people didn't even understand what they were doing. Right now, Roji, like is much later. It's like several decades after this that now Roji starts like analyzing these things of the taxes, the home charges. But the but one of the tricks is what Tharapel calls this bimetallic apartheid. It's gold for the rest of the world and silver for India. Mm. Um, France is bimetallic, but mostly uses silver money and settles most of their accounts in silver, which, you know, whatever people accept, because, you know, if France is bimetallic, then they'll they'll trade in silver. Um, and the first time they try to really systematically uh, have international standards for international trade uh, in these metals is the Latin Monetary Union. All the powers, like France, Italy, Germany, whatever, uh, they all join. So does Russia and the U.S. by 1867. The only country that doesn't join? England. <laughs> Just, you know, why? Why should they? They have their, they've got their own thing. Um, but when Germany uh, tries, Germany's rising industrially, and so they're, they're kind of... Um, trying to figure out how to get into this uh, money game. So they want to go on the gold standard, but Germany has a very big problem. They've been trading mostly in silver, and they want they don't have a lot of gold. 
So like yeah. just for various reasons, there you know Germany has accumulated a big silver reserve, not a big gold reserve. Um, so they can't go on a gold standard, you know, after unification because uh, they don't, or you know, moving leading up to unification because they don't have the actual gold. So how are they going to address this one, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, luckily for them, so they de they had, they actually demonetized gold in 1857, but then by 1870 they actually in 1871 they demonetized silver and they go on a gold standard. So what happens between 1857 and 1871? <laughs> I would refer. You mean what happens in 1870 and 71? Yeah, that's the question. Ah, that um, could be the Franco-Prussian War. That would be the one. So, so uh, when the, after the Franco-Prussian War, um, the pra Germany um, imposes a gigantic indemnity on France, and when they demonetize silver, they demand that France pays them in gold. So France has to dump its silver at a very low price. Um, lowering the price of silver in the world market uh and in order to pay germany in gold and so that whole ish that whole thing that whole operation that series of events uh following the 1870 uh 71 franco-prussian war is what gets the whole world on a gold standard uh they demonetize silver and the gold standard era lasts from 1873 to 1914 and it causes a lot of suffering in a lot of places in fact the sudden demonetization of 18 of silver is referred to in in america as the crime of 1973 did you know that mm. <laughs> it's a big 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 uh, issue political issue in the u.s um it again it destroys half the money supply and circulation right one of the treasury secretaries in 1890s says it was the most gigantic crime of this or any other age now <laughs> well i could think of a few others <laughs> he's the u.s treasury secretary they they've just finished genociding the entire you know the american uh, the the indigenous population uh, but he he thinks the demonetization of silver was the most gigantic crime Anyway, it gives you a sense of what the, how they talk about it. Now, this starts an immense deflation. So the railroad boom in the U.S. collapses in 1873, and the populists uh, get really into silver and bimetallism. So they want uh, they want to go back to to at least uh, bimetallic, and if not, they want to go to the silver standard. And Zarlenga thinks this is a big diversion, right? He's like, what people need to be fighting for is paper money. And the sovereign power to create money, not silver. And silver is better than than gold standard because gold standard is so deflationary that bimetallic would be better. But um, there's a lot of survival strategies that the states do. Um, they issue like postal. They create this postal banking, postal saving system. The the treasury issues some emergency currency. So there's all kinds of things that happen. But again, theory of everything, Dave, 1873, uh, you know, deflation leads to this search for new sources of gold, uh, setting off the scramble for Africa. So once again, gold and silver explain 
History. Hmm. <laughs> but it is right. I mean, in a way, like this is. Oh, there's a place does, for it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They do. They do. It does set off like a, another scramble, and the scramble goes right up until World War One. But then, like Lenin and and uh, W. E. B. Du Bois say, you know, everything's taken now. So there's no there's no other place to conquer to solve your deflation problem, right? Um, so the U.S. Uh, you know creates this Federal Reserve Act uh, under Woodrow Wilson in 1913 and issues the first income tax in 1913, and this is both um, to kind of it's gold backed, but they now have the ability to reserve you know to reduce the gold backing so it starts off uh the the federal reserve system starts off with the dollar being 100 percent gold backed but then it's revised to 60 percent and 40 percent and then as we know in the 1970s zero percent gold backing for the dollar um so uh as for england um the demonetization of silver uh you know, England doesn't demonetize silver until 1893. So for the for the two decades between 1873 and 1893, there's what's called the fall of the rupee. So everywhere else there's deflation, but India actually has inflation because they're the British are dumping all the silver on them. But then eventually, uh, Britain doesn't like what's happening with the rupee. So they peg the rupee to gold as well and require England, India, the government of India, to hold a gigantic gold reserve in Britain for against the rupee that they're issuing. So as one uh, scholar, Irfan Habib, who writes about the Indian economy, he says, <laughs> this, is a, this is a masterpiece of, uh, what do you call it? Understatement. Understatement, that's it, yeah. The entire arrangement was quite profitable for Britain and fairly expensive for India. <laughs> okay. But anyway, gold-backed deflation continues, and in uh, in order as the rearmament and uh, as the demands of arming against uh, each other uh, kind of grow, uh, Britain and Germany in 1914 go off of the international gold standard and exit this uh monetary union well germany exits it and so the so that's the end of the 1873 to 1915 gold standard uh and the beginning of world war one there are so. some uh interesting details in the treaty of versailles mm -hmm. uh which is the end of world war one and it has to do with uh Germany being forced to return the gold <laughs> reserves ah. that they stole from uh, Romania and Belgium. <laughs> and right, right. Yeah, you see how, yeah. And I mean, what, when we when we revisit this, we'll have Michael Hudson and uh, we'll talk about what kinds of things happened in um, with America and Britain and Germany and the indemnity and the what do they call it? The repar the Germany had to pay, right? Yeah, yeah the, the Germany had to pay. And that actually is a major factor in World War II, of course. So, um, so you know, Michael Hudson, who I just mentioned, he actually, he, he, he says gold is actually a peaceful metal because you can't afford to 
fight uh, if you have to borrow in gold. You'll you'll anyone who needs to raise money for war will quickly realize that they can't uh, they can't ma- print enough money for a war. Um, Mm-hmm. Right, so they they might as well make peace. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's, I think there's history <laughs> that says <laughs> you can go to war even on a gold standard. But but it is interesting that they all had to exit the gold standard as immediately as the war started. And and actually, this is where Palenyi comes in because after the war, uh, after the war, holding up the gold standard was so important to the powers because they right. said well if we can maintain the gold standard we can prevent world war ii and of course what happened was everybody went off the gold standard and started world war ii <laughs> so i don't know i mean it, it could be that gold is a peaceful metal but you it just it's not it's cause and effect it's like you can't actually stay on gold and go to war it's not that keeping on gold keeps you from going to war Gold doesn't kill, people kill. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So those are my uh, those are my investigations of uh, the role of of money in history. I think um, I think Zarlenga is an unreliable narrator, but very very interesting stuff. Interesting ideas for sure. Thank you. So for that. where to next? Um. Well, we're going to look at the last possible thing that could have prevented World War One, and that is if the masses the, of workers putting down their tools yeah. and refusing to fight. Yeah, right? yeah. Perhaps the greatest missed opportunity ever. <laughs> yeah. So socialism. We've got all the great characters, right? I mean, this is this is the culmination of of uh, of this whole character study. We have Jean Jaurès, we have Lenin, we have Rosa Luxemburg. Who else do we have? Oh, we got a bunch. We got some uh, some Francisco Ferrer. We got some uh, Catalonian socialists yeah. and Republicans. Kotsky. Oh, your favorite, yeah. all right all right this is gonna be a good one but now that now that you understand money now that my our dear listeners understand uh money and the gold standard it's, it's all gonna be